0: Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along in the message each week. And so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one then get their attention. Those Bibles are marked for you at Ecclesiastes 1, so you don't have to fumble around to, uh, to find it. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. During the graduation season, commencement speeches have been aplenty, as they are every year at this time, as those who've completed high school or college have sat with their fellow graduates and with friends and family for the ceremony, which usually includes a talk from a special speaker. In the last couple of months, nearly two million students graduated college. And most of them sat for the customary commencement speech to hear words of wisdom dispensed. Now, the truth is, almost none of us can remember what was said at our graduations, whether high school or college, and most of us cannot even remember who said it. But a few years ago, Time Magazine ranked the 10 best commencement speeches of all time. Now, surely in these, you're going to find words to live by. But Dr. James Dennison, a Christian apologist, a Christian defender of the faith is what that means, commented on a few of the speeches that are on Time's list saying, the best one according to Time and a variety of other sources is David Foster Wallace's speech to Kenyan college graduates in 2005. He advises them to be, quote, conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to. And choose how you construct meaning from experience. Dennison says, note the relativism in this speech. Meaning is what you construct. Tragically, the one who gave that speech, Henry Foster, David Foster Wallace, suffered from depression and he eventually gave up on meaning, taking his own life three years later. That's ranked the number one speech graduation speech. That same year, Steve Jobs advised Stanford graduates in 2005, quote, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And Dennison comments, in a culture without truth, all we have left are opinions, in which case yours are as good as anyone else's. But then he asked, but what if dogma is based on divine revelation and the quote, other people's thinking is God's thinking? One of those ranked in the top ten as well was John F. Kennedy's commencement speech at American University in 1963. And he made this inspiring claim in it quote our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. But as we know that very same year, the president was killed. James Dennison says the problem of human destiny that scriptures that the scriptures call sin led to his assassination. And contrary to what Kennedy said in that speech. Sin stands beyond human solution. The truth is the best of human wisdom cannot lead to a meaningful life because that requires more than human inspiration. It requires revelation. That is, a meaningful life requires more than the word of man, even when that word is spoken with a rhetorical flourish. We must have a word from God to tell us what we do not know and to warn us of dangers we know not of. Thankfully, God has given us that word. He has given us that word in the Bible. And in particular, in what are called the wisdom books of the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Three of those wisdom books were written by the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. Solomon. And the one that we are studying, Ecclesiastes, was written toward the end of his life as he shares his experiences and he gives truthful, accurate evaluation of those experiences for our benefit. What Solomon supplies in Ecclesiastes is required if you're going to graduate to a meaningful life. Because what he says is prerequisite for seeing the need to pursue that kind of life. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is what you must have if you're to live a life that matters. Not only for the time being, but also when time will no longer be. Eternity. Solomon is supplying the prerequisites for a meaningful life. The things you must have or must understand in order to see the need for a different approach. Now you don't personally have to do all of the things That we're going to hear about today. That we're going to see in the weeks to come. But you'll either do them yourself or better. You'll wisely learn from those who have already done them. And as I told you three weeks ago when we began this series. Experience is indeed the best teacher. Especially when it's someone else's experience. The passage we're going to consider today begins in verse 12. Which starts. I, the teacher. Those words tell us that it's picking up where verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 left off because verse 1 uses that same title, teacher, as well. Verse 1 says, the words of the teacher. And now again, verse 12 says, I, the teacher. In between, verses 3 through 11 are a summary of the book of Ecclesiastes' contents. A summary that we said two weeks ago tells us that from an earthbound, secular perspective, apart from God, nothing that humanity does has any meaning. Nothing. The rhetorical question given in verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That question is answered with a resounding but depressing nothing. And we have an expansion of that, which we read in verse two, which we read in verse two, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So now in verse 12, the teacher, that is Solomon, starts instructing in detail about why he's concluded that life lived strictly from an under the sun perspective is meaningless. And he provides that for us so that we can find meaning in a meaningless world. Now, we have an outline inserted for you in your program, as we do each week, and I encourage you to take a look at that now, so that you can can follow along. We're going to look at that first to four points in just a moment. Let's ask God to help us, though, as we do. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us, you have gathered us. We're here in your presence, and we're here because we have a divine appointment with you to hear from you, from your word, about what true life is. And we thank you for giving us these warnings through your servant Solomon about what it is we are to avoid. Help us to learn from his feet so that we're guided to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You say in the outline, first of all, a meaningful life requires instruction. A meaningful life requires instruction. Now, I've asserted that the one giving this instruction is none other than King Solomon, but I remind you now of why I say that. Verse 12 says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, the phrase king over Israel in Jerusalem identifies the author as Solomon. Because it couldn't have been a king that came before Solomon. There were only two, Saul and David. And verse 1 of Ecclesiastes says the author is the son of David, as Solomon was. Now that phrase, king over Israel in Jerusalem, could have been written by a king after Solomon who could have been called a son of David or a descendant of David. But that's precluded by the phrase Over Israel in Jerusalem. One of the successors. Kings to Solomon. The immediate successor. Was king. Was Rehoboam. His uh, son. And Rehoboam. Reigned over a kingdom. That was immediately divided. After Solomon's death. Divided into a northern kingdom. And a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah. And Jerusalem was located in that southern kingdom of Judah. So it would not be said of them that they were king over Israel in Jerusalem. So this only applies to Solomon. It's Solomon who speaks to us. And when he says, I was king in Israel, it sounds like he's no longer king when he wrote this, as if it's in the past tense. But the phrase is literally, I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So Solomon is still ruling, but he's well into his reign and probably near the end as he gives us Ecclesiastes. And God, through Solomon, is going to give us the instruction we need that's required if we're going to live a meaningful life. In order to pursue a life of purpose, we have got to have direction. Otherwise, we will wander aimlessly without knowing our purpose and therefore we'll have to try to find it on our own, including experiencing all the mistakes for yourself rather than learning from what God has already provided. And I call this need for divine information, I call it the revelational imperative. That is, it's mandatory, it's imperative that we have revelation from God if we're going to have direction toward a meaningful life. By the revelational imperative, I'm saying that if we're to live beyond the horizontal plane, if we're to look beyond what we can experience only with our senses, then we must have a word from God, revelation, God making truth about himself and ourselves and his world and our place in it known to us. To satisfy the necessity of instruction, God has given us, all of us, innate knowledge of himself, just from the very moment one is born and is then able to think, God gives innate knowledge about himself and the fact that we are creatures of this creator. That's why the Bible is able to begin in its very first phrase, in the beginning, God doesn't explain where God came from. It says in the beginning, God, and expects you to know and to understand and to believe that there is such a God. It's why the Bible says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A fool in the Bible, as you've heard me say before, is not necessarily one who is ignorant, but rather one who fails to apply what he knows. He knows there is a God, but he rejects this God. So only the fool says that there is no God. When the great apostle Paul was talking to philosophers in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, He quoted for them one of their own poets who said in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. God has given everyone innate information about his own existence and our place under him as the creator and we, his creatures. So Solomon had instruction from God before his own wisdom was committed to writing. He had that instruction in the form of what we call general revelation. He had the innate knowledge of his relationship as a creature to the creator. And a God-given desire Solomon had to pursue that relationship. But God has given us not only general revelation about himself, but also special revelation in the Bible. Detail about who God is and who we are and what God has created us to do and why it is that we fail to do it and what the solution is. God has provided the information we need to lead a meaningful life through the words of the biblical writers. But especially the words of Solomon. So God has given us information, but he's also given us the ability to acquire and comprehend further information. And that's why I say in your outline, a meaningful life requires information, but also requires investigation. Information and investigation. Verse 13 of chapter 1. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, says Solomon. Solomon's investigation of life, from which we benefit so that we don't have to do our own investigation, that investigation of his was intensely motivated. He says, I applied my mind. His investigation was keenly motivated. And so also it was very thorough. He studied and and explored. These are words that speak of a diligent search. He said in effect, I'm going to find meaning. I'm going to look hard. And he searched diligently. So those words that he studied and explored. Describe a full and complete preoccupation with the task at hand. Now perhaps some of you were like me when I was in school. My mother heard more than once, if Kenny would only apply himself. And Solomon is saying here, I applied myself fully, completely to the task. When I was growing up in uh, in junior high and high school in a, in a Christian school and then later went to seminary, we would begin each of our classes with prayer. I was always annoyed at the prayer of the teacher on test day, who would say something like this Lord, reward these students according to their study. I did not want to be rewarded according to my study. I wanted divine intervention at that moment. Now, why was that the case for me? Because there were times when I was less than diligent. There were times when I didn't study as I ought. I didn't explore the truths that I was handling as I ought. All of us can say, been there, done that. But Solomon says, I searched intentionally and diligently to be there and do that. To see what life had to offer in order to see if there's meaning under the sun. We need, all of us need, what I call a holy inquisitiveness that looks for answers, but looks for those answers from within what God has already revealed. That is, we don't just question everything, but we try to figure out how things fit together in light of what God has already told us. He exists. He is. There's such a thing as right and wrong. That's innate knowledge. Romans 2.15 tells us that all people have. And so we ask questions. We investigate. But too often people are not mentally engaged and hear this, they're not mentally engaged because they're not spiritually engaged. They don't ask those questions, questions that we were we were made to ask and to investigate. And that's because sin dulls the mind so that it does not relate what we were made to know to what we experience. Some of you are just going through life and not asking questions not looking at all that God has given you and told you in creation and in his word and seeking to put it together. You have no inquisitiveness. Someone has to force you to think about spiritual things. Some of you are here today only because you have to be. Somebody drug you air. I've had many times over the years people sit in front of me and I'm trying to tell them truth about God. I'm trying to counsel them, but I'm having to, as it were, force it into them, which of course never does any good. Solomon wanted to know, so he did a diligent, intent search. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings of Solomon, his wisdom was greater than anyone else, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. Then that same chapter goes on to say he spoke about plant life. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So in Solomon, you have a man who was versed in all of life. He was a zoologist. He studied animals. He was a botanist. He studied plant life. He was a strategist. The Bible tells us elsewhere that he studied warfare. He was an architect. He built great buildings, including Solomon's great temple. And, of course, he was a philosopher. He mused about all aspects of life, and men came from all over to hear his wisdom. So you might call Solomon a renaissance man. He was eminently qualified to engage in a quest for the meaning of life. He had wide experience. And so he tells us that he set his mind. He devoted himself to study and explore by all wisdom all that's done under heaven. Verse 13. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And that's why he was a renaissance man. Because he wanted to know all these things. So a zoologist and a botanist and a military strategist, a builder, a philosopher. He wanted to taste it all. And then and only then can I pronounce what is good about man's labor. And so he pursued it diligently. It was a thorough research. He looked at it all. A meaningful life requires instruction. It requires investigation. And thirdly, It requires dissatisfaction, information, investigation, but then dissatisfaction. As we're going to see after you do all that, like Solomon did, or after you learn from what Solomon did so you don't have to, then if you've looked at it properly, the end of that road is you see the dissatisfaction. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. Verse 13, the end of it. Last phrase in verse 13, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Solomon could have created the life is tough and then you die bumper sticker or words to that effect. The word translated burden at the end of verse 13 means an unpleasant task. What an unpleasant task God has placed upon mankind. Now listen, if you expect life to be pleasant, you will be in for a rude awakening. It's the nature of this world in which we live that life is hard and life is difficult. Solomon calls it burdensome. What a burden God has laid on men. That word burden is elsewhere used in the Bible of a failed business transaction. Life is like a failed business transaction. We enter into it, but it doesn't turn out the way we thought the investment would. You see that illustrated in things like men committing suicide in the great stock market crash of 1929 because they couldn't face the reality of their failed business ventures. It was burdensome. That's the image that Solomon gives of life. And then he says in verse 14, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now you may recall if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we started this series that that phrase under the sun is used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It gives us a clue to the message of the book. When he says under the sun, he's saying here is the perspective, the vantage point from which I'm examining life. I'm looking at life from the perspective of this earth and only from this earth. And what I'm telling you about life on this earth is absolutely true if you look at it From only under the sun. But there's a higher vantage point from which to see life that we'll be reminded of in a few minutes. Under the sun, life and all of these things are meaningless. They are a chasing after the wind. That word that's translated chasing. It's elsewhere translated grasping. And it comes from a root word that means to feed or to herd. And the image is of a shepherd who goes out in the field and he begins to round up the flock. He herds them. He gathers them together so that he can lead them. That's the picture. So imagine yourself with the shepherd's crook and the shepherd's rod attempting to herd and corral not sheep, but the wind. It's a herding A chasing after the wind. You're grabbing for it. You're grabbing for that meaning. But it's elusive and it goes through your fingers. What a hopeless endeavor. What a frustrating task. You're led to then this dissatisfaction. And verse 15 compounds it. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Here he's quoting a proverb one probably well-known in his day, and it refers back to the opening chapters of the Bible that tell us the reason that the state of humanity is twisted, crooked, and that in man there is something lacking. You know from the opening chapters of the Bible that we, humanity, chose to fall, chose to sin. Our predecessors, predecessors Adam and Eve were created in perfection to enjoy God in perfect holiness but in rebe- rebellion they fell and since that day the human race has been twisted crooked and sadly lacking you know human wisdom can only identify our problems but it can't do a thing about those problems because we and our wisdom cannot address the core issue and that is that deep within we're twisted, And we're lacking that which enables us to come to God. Contrary to popular opinion, mankind is not basically good. The common phrase, I'm okay, you're okay, could not be more wrong. More accurately, it's I'm sinful and you're sinful. The Bible teaches. From a human standpoint, man is not only crooked, twisted, and lacking, but there's nothing that can be done about it. And notice that Solomon traces all of this to the will of God. What a heavy burden, he says, God has laid on men. A little later in this book, he'll talk about men being twisted, and he'll say God has done the twisting. So here's a clue to the solution to that problem. God is in control of all things. And he brings into our lives both that which is bitter and that which is sweet. Here Solomon is focusing on the bitterness that comes from the hand of God. But toward the end of the book, Solomon makes clear that God does these bitter and from our standpoint not understandable things ultimately for our good. So this is where a quest for the meaning of life should lead you. God has instructed He's given us a general revelation. He's given a specific revelation. He's given us further instruction through the, the words of Solomon and others. He instructs us. There's investigation that needs to be done, but you can benefit by just looking at the investigation that's already been done. And where that should lead you is, as I've said, thirdly, to dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with life to turn you to some other answer Outside of yourself. But here's what happens to us. Too often we are preoccupied by the if-onlys in life. We're dissatisfied, yes. But we then conclude, if I only had a better job. If I only had more money. If I only had a bigger house. If I only had a better education. And some take it to extremes. If I only had a different spouse, if I only had more obedient children, a more considerate family, better friends, if only I had a different cause to live for, and on it goes, we could string it out as long as we have time. And so people know they're dissatisfied. They see it doesn't work. But the question is, to what or to whom do they turn? And too many people go through the if-onlys. Most of us have heard the expression midlife crisis. I've made the case for years that midlife crisis starts when you're very young, long before midlife. Midlife crisis starts perhaps in your teens, your early 20s. When you're planning your life and you have all of these expectations and you've you know, got these rhetorical flourishes going through your mind that you heard at graduations, stuff like that. And you think it's going to be a particular way. You've set your expectations. These expectations, whether consciously expressed or unconsciously held, if they are unfulfilled, as most often they are, result in dissatisfaction. In fact, you've heard me say that expectations minus reality equals trouble. Expectations minus what really happened, what I thought was going to happen versus what really happened results in depression, despondency, anger, bitterness, and so on. People reach midlife, and the realities of what Solomon wrote come crashing in, all is meaningless, so I must do something, and so they develop the if-only, here here must be the answer. And the if-only explanation of the meaninglessness of life trivializes the reality of the problem. Because, friends, the problem is not that which is external to us. It's an internal problem. Solomon studied it all. We're going to trace his steps in that study throughout this book. And he says, though, the problem is not what you do not have. The problem is not what you've not done. It's much deeper than all of that. But you do not begin to look up until you first realize that there are no answers in looking down. Until you realize there are no answers on the horizontal plane, it is only then that you begin to look up for the answer and the only place from which the answer will come. That happened in the story of the prodigal. You remember that? The prodigal leaves. He engages in wild living. And then he finally realizes there are no answers here here's what the Bible tells us. When he came to his senses, he said, I go back to my father. But notice he had to come to his senses. You have to realize that it's empty, that it does not satisfy. And then that dissatisfaction is to lead you in the right direction. But most often it does not. And so I say, fourthly, in your outline, a meaningful life requires instruction and investigation, dissatisfaction and frustration. Because we keep doing it. And so it's continually frustrating. Verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and of knowledge. What Solomon says about himself here is absolutely true. He was the wisest of all. The queen of Sheba came from Africa to see his greatness, and she said, I had to see it for myself. I had heard about it, but I had to see it. The scriptures tell us that Solomon wrote over 3,000 proverbs, and he composed 1,005 songs of wisdom as we read from 1 Kings 4. And yet that was not enough for Solomon. He determined to further his knowledge through other pursuits. Verse 17. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Now one way to understand a truth is to compare to its opposite. Madness and folly do not refer to losing one's mind or a low IQ, but in scripture they have a moral meaning. They describe behaving badly, behaving wildly. There came a point in Solomon's life when he did just that. When he says he applied himself to understanding wisdom and madness and folly, it's a way of saying I looked at both extremes and everything in between. And in doing that, I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Now, remember, this is the teacher to students. So what a jolt this must have been, especially in light of what this same one had said in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. And now toward the end of his life, he's saying wisdom brings sorrow. How can that be reconciled? Well, the difference is in the two perspectives, one from under the sun, another from above. So from under the sun, he says and concludes in verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more, you know, he says, the more pain you have. It's like a musician's knowledge that causes him to see the flaws all the more from a novice. To whom it all sounds good, so the novice can sit down at the piano, play it, and say, I'm doing great. But the one who knows understands otherwise. Now, it doesn't mean that Solomon recommended ignorance. But he's being honest about the reality of our pursuit of human wisdom. It results in, in sorrow. And that's the pain that much wisdom brings. And why is that? Because we can identify the problems by our knowledge, by looking around, by investigating. The problems like crime rates and divorce rates and human life being devalued in the ravages of drugs and lawsuits. And yet in all our wisdom and in all our technological advances, the more we work, the worse things become. So no wonder it's sometimes said ignorance is bliss. I'd rather not know all the problems because the truth is I can't fix them. This is the view from under the sun. If this life is all there is, it's indeed hopeless and futile and we're left with sorrow and grief and anguish and frustration. But lastly, in your outline, a meaningful life requires not only instruction and investigation and dissatisfaction and frustration. The end game needs to be salvation. A meaningful life requires salvation. And you don't have to experience all of this to come to the point that you see the need for salvation. You can experience all of this vicariously because someone else has already done it. Someone, has, someone else has already told you where that road leads. So young people, contrary to what you may have heard at commencement, you don't have to experience it all for yourself. Solomon experienced it all, and he tells you what the end of that road is. And so you can cut through all of that, and you can save yourself a whole lot of misery. And you can do what the frustration of life is designed to lead you to, and that is to Christ. As great as Solomon was in all of his exploits and all of his endeavors and all of his majesty and his wealth. Here's what Jesus said about himself when he walked the earth. Something greater than Solomon is here. Namely Jesus. The question is, do you see it that way? Do you have eyes to see that the Bible has told you the path that you don't need to go and gives you Directions to the narrow path that few people go. Do you have eyes to see that? Most do not. The Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you're sitting here and you say, if only, and you're still doing the if only, and you're still trying to fix what's wrong then you've not achieved the purpose that God has for you, to see your need for Christ, for a relationship with Him through Christ and His cross. That same passage in 1 Corinthians 1 asks, Who is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then it goes on to say, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So friend, the question for you is this. Do you have eyes to see that the stuff you've been pursuing is ultimately meaningless under the sun? Apart from a relationship with the God who made you, Then all of our endeavors amount to nothing. A chasing after the wind. God wants you to know that frustration. Better to know it through the experience of others, but even through your own experience, so that you see, as is said in the book of Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. So that you see the end of that road. And then you lift your eyes and you turn to the one and only answer, the God who made you and the salvation he offers in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives you eyes to see. Then he changes you from the inside out. And now you live a radically different life. Doesn't mean that things are better. I want to promise that like the guys on TV i got bad news for you. Things might actually get worse because people don't like Christians. So you become a Christian, it might actually get worse, but your perspective on things is infinitely better. And you now know why they happen and why you're here and why you're doing what you're doing and your labor for the Lord is not in vain. So I invite you to turn to Him because in the words of your take-home truth, a meaningful life requires a new life. A meaningful life requires a new life. We're going to bow and pray. And when we do, those of you that know the Lord, thank him that he's given you this instruction in his word about what is true, about what is to be pursued, that he has led you to true meaning in the person of the Lord Jesus. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, if you came into this room not knowing what that was about, then use this moment as we bow before God to acknowledge your sin. Sin is just a term that describes all of the ways in which we live and think and talk that are outside of God's will. So your sin, you have it and I have it. Your sin has what has caused you and this world to experience the frustration that it does. The solution to that is the new world that Jesus brings and those who are going to be a part of it are those who come to him in this life and begin to live a new life for him here and now. You need to be a part of that. You need to have that. So you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin. You repent of your sin. You say to him, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm no longer going to go the way of the world. I'm going to follow the way of your wisdom. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You pray from your heart to God. I'm a sinner. I believe you're the only answer to my sin. That Jesus died for my sin. And I'm going to follow you with my life. And he promises to save you, to deliver you, to rescue you. From the meaninglessness of an otherwise futile life. Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for gathering us, for meeting with us, and for instructing us. We thank you for your servant Solomon, for his diligent search throughout all of life and all that he experienced, and for recording that for our benefit so that we don't have to make the same mistakes. We don't have to learn from our own mistakes. We can learn from the mistakes of others If we indeed are wise. And so Lord, I pray that you would move on the hearts of any who came into this room without a relationship with you. Without eyes to see this world from above the sun. That you would change them from the inside out as only your spirit can do. Give them new eyes to see what they're doing and the futility of it. So that they now follow you. And so that now they now have a radically different and altered perspective. I pray as well that you would help those of us who do know you because we are continually beckoned by the siren call of the world to see through worldly eyes and to look at life as we once did. Lord, we sin, we fail. We ask you to forgive us. Thank you for this reminder. And I pray that my brothers and sisters are asking you to keep us on the path though it be narrow, the only path that leads to true life, an abundant life that Jesus promised. And as a result of that, Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. For it's that for which we were made. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.